Uh, this past week, I was listening to music while I was working, which is always a, a dangerous thing. And uh, a song came on, Dylan's, uh, I was listening to some of Bob Dylan's music, and his, uh, These Times Are A-Changing was on the rotation on the greatest hits. These times, they are changing, you know. You heard that song? Yeah. Um, and I was, when I heard the song, I was thinking about the sermon from last week because I was speaking about change, the things that change and the things that must remain the same. Time is an incubator for change. Change is unavoidable. It's inevitable in life. Having said that, last week we, we touched on that and then we touched on a handful of things that the passage calls devotions of the early church. Things that the early Christians, the apostles, were absolutely devoted to. Things that could not change. And one that I sort of just skimmed right across that I'd like to focus in on a bit more and go a little bit deeper with this morning is the devotion of prayer. The devotion of speaking to God, talking to him. I'd like you to just take a moment right now and I'd like you to consider your own devotion to prayer. What does it consist of? What does it look like? Can you say with integrity that it is a devotion of your life? How about this? Most of you have cell phones and most likely at some point or another you have received those annoying notifications regarding the amount of time you've spent on this or on that, this browser, that app. Many of us at one time or another have been confronted with the reality and the conviction that we are devoted to stupid things. We're confronted with how many minutes or hours we've spent on certain things and if we have a conscience, we should feel guilty. And whether we listen to it is, a, is another question, but I, how many of you have felt that way? I have. My wife's felt that way for me. It's been helpful. It's been helpful. Sometimes that notification comes on when she has my phone and we've talked about it. It's helpful. And I've had to face the reality that I have devotions that I don't even intend. If God was assessing your devotion of prayer, what would he think? What would it show? Can you say that you're devoted without either feeling like you're lying, on the one hand, or on the other, that you have an incredibly shallow view of what devotion is. I want to read the Word of God together. Would you stand with me now? We're going to turn to the third chapter of the book of Acts. We're going to read the first ten verses together. Acts 3, 1 through 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus 
Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. He entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The word of the Lord. Amen. Would you please raise your hands as we pray to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for what it teaches us. Thank you for what you did for this lame cripple. Thank you for what you've done for us. Father, I pray that you would make us more dependent upon you. I pray that you would cause us to be heavenly-minded rather than earthly-minded, dependent on you rather than dependent on foolish things. Father, I pray that as uh, I preach, you would be with my words. And Father, I pray that they would be pleasing to you. I pray that the thoughts of our hearts and minds would be pleasing in your sight. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You can be seated. So I want to begin by pointing out something that our passage says, but we might not notice it if we were just reading casually. It's a little detail that we may not recognize the importance of at first. There's a detail given to us that is not only central to the healing of the lame beggar, but it's actually a central thing to all of the wonderful things that are going to take place as we go through the book of Acts together. It is something that we really can't afford to miss sight of as we're reading the scripture. It's something that we can't afford to miss sight of in our own lives. It should be one of our central devotions and commitments. It is something that we should be known for. It is something that we should take advantage of. And what I hope to convince you of or to remind you of this morning is that it is a great privilege. It's a wonderful privilege. It's a blessing. What are we told by Luke? that might go unnoticed, but that is actually the underlying foundational piece to this whole exchange. What is it? Well, I've already spoken to you a little bit about what we want to think about this morning, so you have a tip. It was this fact. Chapter 3, verse 1, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. They were on their way to pray. The apostles were men of prayer. Luke makes this point by telling us of their intention. If we look back at the prior chapters, we're going to recognize that actually this is not just some random or spontaneous act that they were led to do at this particular moment on this particular day, but actually what we see here is consistent with the way that they lived. This This is normal for the apostles. This is normal for the early Christians. This is normal for the church, or it should be. We look back at the activities that followed after Jesus ascended into heaven, and what do we see? We see that for a number of days, the Christians gathered together, and we're told that they all with one mind were continually devoting, there's that word again, themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. 
At the end of chapter two, we saw the effects of Peter's sermon. Thousands, 3,000, nearly 3,000, around 3,000, came to faith and put their faith in Jesus Christ. But it didn't end there. We are told, if we go back to chapter two, that these new Christians were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread together and to prayer. Day by day, they were continuing with one mind in the temple. This isn't just describing something that took place on one day. Luke is describing the sort of life and character of Christ's church. He, des- he is describing what the life of the apostles was like day by day. We're told that they were going to the temple at the hour of prayer. However this practice of hours of prayer started, it eventually made its way into Jewish society, Jewish religious law. The rabbis taught the Jews to pray three times a day, citing the example of David and Daniel and others in the Old Testament. And eventually there were fixed times where there would be prayer at the temple, roughly around 9 a.m., around noon, and then around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And the morning and the evening prayers were probably about the same time that the sacrifices were being offered by the priests in the temple. As we see in our passage here in Acts 3, Jesus' disciples continued this practice of regular prayer even after Jesus' ascension. Peter and John were going to the temple to spend time in prayer because they were men of prayer, because they were devoted to speaking with God. And what we need to recognize is that if we are going to be a church that experiences the power of God, and everyone wants that, everyone would say, yes, we want that experience, then we must be people of prayer. If we're going to have success as a church, if we're going to have success as husbands, as wives, as parents, fathers and mothers, in your vocation to be a faithful teacher, a faithful doctor, a faithful contractor, you must be a person of prayer. I'm not insinuating that we manufacture God's power, but what we're told again and again and again and again and again is that God gives his power to those who devote themselves to him. And that's what we see in our passage. The healing of this lame man laying at the gate outside the temple only happened because two of Jesus' apostles were men of prayer and they were going to the temple to pray. They were on their way to pray. So we must be a congregation, men and women, who pray. And it's not to say that saying we must be people that pray really isn't strong enough. It doesn't really convey the sense of what I'm trying to get at. When I say that we must pray, what I mean is that we must be men and women, young people, that are devoted to prayer as a way of life, as a devotion. I think that the idea of going some, anywhere three times a day, the, I think the idea of an hour of prayer seems probably strange to most of you. But that was devotion to prayer. And I'm not trying to nitpick at how long all of your prayers have to be. Jesus said, don't pray for long periods of time like the Pharisees straining out pious-sounding garbage, verbiage. But we must be devoted to prayer. And you have to answer to God whether your life is one that is devoted to prayer. And what I'm trying to say is that to the extent that God will fill you and this church with his power and work, it's going to be on the basis in part of are we a congregation that prays? Anyone prays when they feel desperate. 
Aaliyah was telling me about a, a podcast she's listening to about the history of the Korean War, or maybe it was World War II. I, it's, she's, there's been a variety of them, but she was telling me about how, you know, there's these horribly graphic scenes where, you know, you have these, these men falling on their knees, confessing and begging God instead of even trying to defend themselves as they're, as they're being an, put to death, you know? And it's, there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. Everyone prays at those sorts of times, but we must be people of prayer. We can't just pray when it's urgent. We have to see that prayer is urgent every day. Luther, Martin Luther said, I cannot be so busy that I, I am so busy that I must at least pray for a few hours of the day. We'd think of it in the exact opposite way. I'm too busy to pray. He said, I'm too busy not to pray. That's the sort of urgency and devotion that I'm speaking to. Many times in the Bible, we are told to pray. Praise the Lord. Make, let your requests be made known to the Lord. Confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. Thank God for what he has done and for who he is. We are told that Jesus serves as our mediator, our go-between between us and God the Father, that he represents us to his Father, that he carries our supplications and requests to his Father, and that's why we pray in Jesus' name, amen, because that's the work that he's doing. All these things are true. The Bible does teach us and command us to pray, and yet, here's one thing I want us to all recognize. God doesn't need you to pray. We're commanded to. God doesn't need you to pray. He knows your needs. He knows your desires. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows what you're going to experience this afternoon and tomorrow. He doesn't need to know what you're telling him. He already does. He wants us to pray. He desires to hear from you. He wants us to be vulnerable and to speak to him. And if you don't, you just aren't devoted to him. There's no way you can have a friendship, let alone a devoted relationship to someone that you don't talk to. I was talking this past week with somebody and I was saying that I have not talked with anybody from my school since high school, essentially. And it was one of those weird interactions because here I am talking about how I've barely seen people from high school since I left and I've almost never talked to them. And right at that moment, what happens? Somebody from my grade walks over and says hi to me. And I said hi back and we didn't really talk. Uh, we spoke for a moment, but we don't have a friendship. We certainly aren't devoted. I haven't talked with her since high school. I mean, I talk with her once every 10 years. That's not devotion. Talking with somebody when you, it's urgent and you need it, that's not devotion. God wants us to be devoted to him. And one of the ways that our devotion is seen is through our speech, our prayer. He doesn't want superficiality. He doesn't want you to speak pious, pious jargon to him. He wants you to be real and honest and devoted. God wants us to pray, and he gives us many reasons to do so. And we are blessed in so many ways through prayer. Prayer is for us. God doesn't need us to pray. We need to pray. God knows the future. We need to pray so that our hearts are at peace and trust him for the future. There are a number of reasons to pray, blessings of prayer that are illustrated in the verses that we read together. 
And so with the time that we have remaining, I'd like to walk through the passage um, and point some of them out to us as we think about our necessity, of, the necessity of prayer and our devotion to this, to this act of faith. The first one that I want to point out is obvious, and yet it's very powerful. And the first thing I'd like to point out, the first way that, uh, the first benefit of prayer that's illustrated is that those who pray are used by God. It's very simple. Those that pray are used by God. If you don't ever pray, God's not going to use you for anything. Peter and John are on their way to the temple with the intention to pray. And it is there at that time that they are presented with an opportunity to be used by God in a way that's going to change this other man's life forever and that's going to give them a, a, a platform to declare the truth of God to another huge crowd at the temple. It's their willingness to pray that's going to lead, as we're going to see in future weeks, to them being able to preach and many, many more coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. It was this little, little devotion to prayer, that little word, phrase at the end of the sentence that leads to God using them in these ways. And of course, the Bible is filled with many stories that say the same thing again and again and again to us. This should not be a surprise. In the prayer of confession, Mario alluded to, to Nehemiah, Nehemiah's prayer before Israel. But in, in his prayer before Israel, he isn't just praying for the people, he's praying for himself. Nehemiah was a man of prayer, and God used him to, to, break, to rebuild the city that had been torn down. He was a man of prayer. Think about Daniel. Daniel, that man of God who was living uh, in, in exile with the Persians. The story of Daniel is that there was a king and he, was, uh, he had all sorts of wise men, counselors, and Daniel was one of those, but Daniel was a Christian. He believed in God and, and the others were jealous of him because, you know, he knew the truth, the king favored him. And so, essentially, one of the stories of Daniel is that the pagan counselors said, we need to get rid of this guy. He's our competition. And so they, they kind of talked the king into making this ordinance that no one could pray to anybody except to the king for a, a certain amount of time. And they knew, man, Daniel's probably going to break that rule and keep praying to his God. So the king was tricked into signing this rule into law. And Daniel kept praying. In fact, in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, it says this, now, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he entered his house. Now, in his house, the roof chamber had windows that were open toward all of Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks to God, as he had done previously. Daniel was a man of prayer. And, of course, what happens, you can probably guess, he's reported He's taken, and as punishment, he's thrown into the den of lions. And after a period, uh, after the night, the king goes to the top of the den, expecting Daniel, worried that his cherished advisor is going to be torn to pieces. And he goes, first thing in the morning, says, Daniel, are you okay? And Daniel hollers up and says, I I'm all right. Then Darius, the king, 
had all the wicked counselors thrown into the den and we're told that their bodies didn't even hit the floor. The, the lions were so hungry that they annihilated them before they even hit the floor. And then Darius said this. Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all of the land, may your peace abound. I make this decree that by, in all of my dominion and my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and endures forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel even from the power of these lions? Okay. Signs, wonders in the heavens and the earth, deliverance, rescue, power. These are the things that Darius recognizes, and they're all a result of what? Well, they're all a result of Daniel foundationally being a man who's committed to prayer. All of that happens as a result of Daniel simply being committed to prayer. Prayer, God works and uses those who pray. I could go on and say others, but I'm not going to. All throughout the Bible, we see this. When you pray, God works to do things that you would not believe. Daniel didn't expect all of that to happen to him. He couldn't have foretold it. When Peter and John were going to the temple, they couldn't have ever expected that something like this would happen. But God uses those who pray. It is one of the reasons that prayer is such a blessing, such a gift. We must be men and women of prayer. Look at verses one and two. John and Peter are on their way, and it just so happens that they arrive at the same time as a crippled man. Their arrival at the temple coincides with his arrival perfectly. That's the way that Luke describes it. Was it coincidence? Was it coincidence? It absolutely was not coincidence. It was, they did coincide, but there are no coincidences. Peter doesn't treat the situation like a meaningless coincidence. He takes ownership of the situation. We divert our eyes from the poor. He said, look at me. He sees this as an opportunity. A divine purpose is laid out before him. Those that pray live a life of radical purpose where there is no such thing as coincidence. When we pray, we are setting our minds on the things that are above. We are transcending the realm of this world and we are entering into the throne room of Almighty God. Prayers sets our minds into the spiritual dimension that is at work all around us and yet which our world denies. The Bible teaches us that we, our fight is not against flesh and blood, it's against the spiritual realm that we live among. Again and again, this theme, we, there, we are taught that there are things that are happening that we can't anticipate and that we don't see, and yet they are very real, as real as the things we can see. And in prayer, we are, we are committing our minds and our hearts to the acknowledgement that that realm is true and real. And we are preparing ourselves to live within it more faithfully by the power of God. I was just kind of thinking about how to help us um, see this. And I, I thought about, a, 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 a Leah and I watched a movie recently um, called Greyhound, and it was basically about a sub 
or a captain of a ship going through the channel uh, to Britain, and there's a section of the channel where, you know, they are not, the planes either coming from Britain or elsewhere don't have enough fuel to cover the whole entire passageway of the ships, and so there's this section of of the water that is where they have no air protection from. And the German U-boats would just swarm that section of the water and take out these ships, okay? That's the basic premise. And uh, all throughout the movie, the, the captain is in correspondence with other people. He's in correspondence with, um, with, with, the, with the Air Force at certain points, right? He's, he's in correspondence with those that are down in the hull of the ship, you know, pinging and trying to figure out where these German U-boats are. And I'm saying that kind of is a, imagine the captain of that ship trying to navigate through waters where he, there are things that he doesn't see without any communication, right? No ability to call in for air support. No ability to call down to the hull and say, hey, radar, what's going on? Where, no ability to do that. He'd be dead in the water, literally. Uh, and that, that came to my mind because that's really what, when we are praying, we are going to God who sees things and knows things that we don't. And he's helping us to anticipate those things. He's helping us to navigate through those things. I hope that illustration helps. The man who believes that God is sovereign and in control of all things, who rules and reigns over all people, all nations, all diseases, problems, all joys and good things too. For that man, the world is his oyster, right? There's no such thing as coincidence. Everything happens for a purpose, and he sees himself as playing a role, having something to give in that situation. There is nothing that happens to him by coincidence because he recognizes that God is orchestrating it all, and God is inviting him to play some part in it. There is no situation that he cannot affect for the better because God is in control. There is no person that he cannot encourage or engage with because God is in control. There's no problem that cannot be in some way helped because his God is in control. And when we pray, we are tuning our hearts and our minds to the spiritual reality of God's authority and sovereignty and rule and reign in this world. But we're dull to those realities without spiritual devotion without being devoted to prayer. We're dull to it. We don't want to be dull. When you see things through the lens of God having put you here for a specific purpose, there is no such thing to a stranger, as a stranger rather, to the one who is friends with God. The God who created them the God who created you. Imagine the purpose in living in such a way. This is another great reason to have a life that is devoted to prayer. There is no coincidence. There's no coincidence. There is divine purpose in everything you do. But do you see it or are you dull? We must be a people of prayer. The temple that this exchange takes place in front of is the same temple that probably a few months before had captured the disciples' attention and admiration shortly before Jesus would go to be crucified. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus and his disciples were walking out of this very same temple 
And the disciples were starting to comment to Jesus about how grand and glorious and impressive this building was. They said, what wonderful stones, master, look. What wonderful pillars. How great is this? Jesus, in his response, is indignant. He says, yeah, not one of these stones is going to be left upon another. He is essentially scolding his disciples for being so enamored with the, with the wealth, with the opulence of the architecture and the grandeur and everything that Herod's temple represented. It's that building that Peter and John are going into in our passage. But they aren't just going into the building. Luke, who, who writes this book, is a doctor, and so he gives very scrupulous details all throughout the book. He has a very keen sense of detail. So he adds in all these facts, like the cripple was lame from birth, right? He gives us those details. Another detail he gives us is the specific gate that they enter through. He says that it was the gate, the gate called Beautiful. It sounds as if Luke is describing the Nicanter Gate, which was on the east side of the temple. And this gate, if it is that one, was made of Corinthian brass. And there's an, there's an ancient historian by the name of Josephus, and he describes this gate in his own writings, saying that this gate greatly excelled even those that were covered with silver and gold. It was 75 feet high and had huge double doors. So that's Josephus describing this specific gate. Imagine in the background of this little scene that takes place between Peter and the cripple, the impressive temple of Herod the Great, the pillars, the beams, the marble, the stone. In the foreground, a massive bronze gate. This ceiling, I think, is about 35 feet high, so imagine twice as high as this ceiling. It is here that the crippled man saw Peter and John and asked for money. I have to imagine that this cripple felt very disheartened after Peter said, look at us, and then heard, I have no money or silver or gold to give you. You can imagine how the heart of this man would go, look at me, oh, I got one, oh, oh. look at me, I have nothing for you. No silver or gold. He certainly offers him something. Much better. We'll talk more about that. Peter has no silver or gold to offer this beggar. It's quite a contrast with the backdrop, isn't it? Think about that. The most preeminent of the apostles has nothing in his pockets to offer. You know? He just he doesn't have anything to offer. But he had something far better than silver or gold. I do not possess silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. Oh, what is this? What do you got? I mean, I really would, money, money or food is about all that is really valuable to me. What I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. Those who pray may not have the wealth of this world, but God gives to you something much greater. He gives to you his power. He gives to you his power. Centuries after this incident would take place, the Thomas Aquinas, who you may or may not have heard of, visited Rome, and he had an audience with the Pope. And we're told that 
Aquinas was amazed at the glory and the splendor of the Vatican even in his day. St. Peter's Basilica wasn't built at this point, but even that which was there then was glorious, impressive, beautiful. And when he was with the Pope, the Pope made a comment about the wealth. He said to Aquinas, no longer do we need to say silver and gold, I have none. And what was Thomas Aquinas' response to him? He said, and that is why we may not say, stand your feet and walk. God's tools are not with this world, but his tools he does offer to you if you are a man or a woman of prayer. Those who know how to overcome with God in prayer have all of heaven and earth at their disposal. They do not need silver or gold. They do not need the power of this world. They have something much, much greater. Hudson Taylor famously said, when we work, we work. When we pray, God works. This is another wonderful reason that we must pray. So we should be devoted to prayer because those who are devoted to prayer, God will use. Those who are devoted to prayer will have a very keen sense of their purpose. Nothing is just circumstantial. Everything has a purpose, and we're invited into that by God. Those who pray receive his power. We must be a people of prayer. There's one more thing I want to mention. The final thing that I'd like to mention is that those who pray receive answers to their prayer. We're told that Peter and John were going to the temple to pray, and we're not told what they were going to pray for. But it isn't a mystery. Just think about the kinds of things they might request of God. Think about the task that they were given by Christ. Think about the things that they might be seeking to accomplish. Think about their mission and their work. They were likely praying for all sorts of things and for all sorts of people. But among those prayers was certainly the request that God would glorify himself and that he would use them and, and, and spread his word with power. And we don't get to it in our verses this morning, but the healing of this man is going to lead, like I said to Peter, having this magnificent platform to speak in the temple to a huge crowd about Jesus Christ who is resurrected and offers them salvation. Peter receives an answer to his prayers as he was on his way to the temple to pray. Those prayers received an answer. And I could, you know, time fails us, you know, but I could look back at the 20 years of our history as a church and point to thing after thing that we've committed to praying for that God has answered. And it's not always been in the way that we've wanted it to be in the moment. Many times it has been. But we look back at all those answers to prayer and we see that they were good. Sometimes it's a, just a glorious yes to what we were desiring. Sometimes it's a no to what we were desiring, but a glorious yes to seeing his purpose and how it's born good fruit. You do not have because you do not ask. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you will receive them and they will be granted to you by my Father. This is just what Jesus says. So, Pray and ask of God and then receive from him. At the beginning of our time together, I asked you to consider whether you were devoted to prayer. God calls us to pray all throughout the Bible, and most of the time those, those prayers, those calls to prayer, speak to why prayer is such a blessing to us. It's not that God always needs your prayers, it's that he invites you to pray. The door is open to you. We've looked at a few reasons 
that we should pray, and I want to end by calling on you not to be satisfied with where you're at in your devotion to prayer. Do not be satisfied. Do not be content with so little prayer. There's much that we desire to do. There's much you want to do in your own personal life, in your family. There's a lot of things that we want to do here as a church. It's going to take great faith and it's going to take great prayer. And with prayer, the, I, what, we, what I know and my experience is limited. There are many of you that pray better than I do, but I'm seeking to grow. What I do know about prayer is that the deeper you go in prayer, the greener the pastures, right? The higher you climb in prayer, the better the view. And, and often that will come with age, but we must continue to devote ourselves to it, and we will see great and wonderful things. The more devoted you are, the more blessed you will be. This is God's promise to you. This is not just my verbiage. This is what the Scripture teaches. Test God and find this. Pray. Pray. Enter the treasure house of God and gra- gather riches from him that will never be extinguished. Pray. Devote yourself to prayer. Let's pray.